one of the frustrations, of course, I had is you're seeing all of this mass of lost humanity there, and there is such a language barrier, barrier that you, you just struggle. You, you wish you could just tell somebody about the gospel. And we had been in, in India, oh my goodness, it was our, our, really our first major trip out of, the, out of the country, and we were there for 17 days, and I would not encourage you, if you're going to take your first trip out of the country, to do it to India, and if you do, I wouldn't suggest that you go for 17 days, 17 minutes perhaps. But, uh, you know, we, we have been there quite a while and, and a little bit frustrated about the fact that we hadn't been able to really share the gospel with any of these folks. And we, we had a guide that was with us, and of course he was a believer, and he was taking us to various places. And, and again, it's one of those unique places in the world to where they don't have things written in English. I mean, you have to have a guide that's with you to be able to get you, get you through. So as he had been our guide and we had gotten to know him, we had developed a friendship with him, and we talked very openly with him about everything. And as we were making one of the connections on to the trip uh, that we were taking down to the southern part of India, we had engaged in a conversation as we were moving on to this, this next train and we're walking down the, the, the corridor there and we come into this, uh, this little cabin, this little coach where we're going to be. And we're, we're involved in a conversation about the United States and we were talking about uh, abortion as we come on to the, the car. And when we get into the car, and this is, you know, the sun is just about going down at this point, we walk into the car and there is a lady that's already seated in the, in the car. And on the wall there, because we were traveling first class, of course, and first class, let me tell you, in India is like cattle car in the United States. Okay, I'm not trying to diss India. I'm just telling you how it is, man. It's, it's filthy. It's yucky. It's all of that stuff. But what it says on the wall is six by day, four by night, okay? And because this is a, a, a car that's going to sleep people overnight, you've got a, a bench here, and that sleeps one, and then you've got a bench across in the, uh, the, the, the car that sleeps one. And then they've got these things that fold down that are above the bench there, fold down, and it makes a bed. And over on this side, another one that makes a bed, so it sleeps four. So... It's not bedtime yet, but we walk in, and we're, we're talking about abortion. And so, you know, we start getting into the fact I'm, I'm just, you know, hey, we got hours and hours to go, you know. And so I'm talking about, you know, some people are speculating that because we have murdered so many babies, that by the time the people that were responsible for murdering these babies get to the point to where they'd like to draw... Uh, Social Security, it may be that there's not enough money in the thing. You know, just speculating, throwing that out. And so we begin to talk about some of the aspects of that. And all of a sudden, now the train's been moving down the road, and we're chugging along for about 10 minutes or so by the time we come to this point in the conversation. And this lady, she pipes up all of a sudden. She speaks English about as good as I do. I, I mean, I hadn't met anybody that talked and spoke in English, and especially as, as beautifully as this lady spoke. And she says, that's very interesting. She said, I, I'm, a, I'm an economist here in India, and, you know, the things that you're saying are, you know, quite interesting to me. And so we, we start into this conversation about the economics. She's asking me different things about our country. 
And we're just having a wonderful conversation. I'm thinking, man, this is going to be great. Finally got somebody that speaks English. I may be able to give someone the gospel. And I'm already beginning to pray in my spirit, oh God, open doors of utterance on this thing. So as we're moving along, she says, now, what are you doing in my country? And I'm like, all right, here we go. And, and so I, I'm not trying to give her the truckload, you know. And so I, I just begin, and I, I tell her I'm a pastor in the United States, and I'm here just observing, really, what God is in the midst of doing in your country. And she goes, oh, now, you're a Christian then? And I'm like, wow, all right, she's got the terminology down. And so I said, uh, yeah, yes, I am. And she says, oh, this is, this is wonderful. I've wanted to talk to somebody like you. She said, have you noticed in your country that there are people who are in the Protestant religion that are forsaking that to become Roman Catholic? And I'm thinking to myself, okay, where is she coming from? You know, I'm trying to, to get in her head because I don't want to mess up on this answer. I'd love to have a, a door of utterance with her. And I, I, I'm, 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 my mind is going, you know, and I, I, I can't figure out where she's coming from. And so I, I just, you know, I said, you know what? Uh, actually, no. Uh, quite the opposite. I, I have seen many, many Roman Catholics that have forsaken Roman Catholicism to embrace Christianity. And, and this is what she said to me. Oh. Well, that's interesting. She says, I, I was just thinking that since Roman Catholicism with its idolatry, and idolatry being such an outward expression of a person's faith, I just figured after a period of time, the Protestants would want that outward demonstration of something that they had never been able to actually experience. And I'm thinking to myself, wow. Here is a Hindu lady, and she had already explained to me that she was a Hindu, explaining to me that Roman Catholicism is an idolatrous religion. I, I, and I'm just, at this point, I'm just telling you this conversation, okay? And so she says, now, there, there's another writer that is in your country and he writes about Jesus, he writes about Christianity, but really what it is, is it's, it's just Hinduism. And what he has done is he just replaced the gods of Hinduism with Jesus Christ, and it's just uh, another form of Hinduism. And I'm thinking to myself, oh my goodness, who is this? And she said, have you ever heard of anybody named Norman Vincent Peale? And I said, yeah, I, I have. And she says, you know what? All it is is Hinduism. And so, man, I'm, I'm filing it away. Man, I, I'm learning some stuff here from this Hindu lady. And, and so then she says, so now, okay, what is it that you actually do? Okay, and now I'm like, okay, here it is. The moment we've all been waiting for, please understand now, We've been in this conversation a good 45 minutes, probably an hour at this point, and we're just having a conversation just like I'm having with you right now. And so she says, um, so what is it that you actually do? Do you, do you teach the people rituals? Is, is that what you do? 
And, and I began to explain to her. And, and listen, now some of you that are here today, this would be great for you to, to hear this because this is really the, the crux of the matter right here. I said to her, you know what? That's, that's exactly what has taken place in the world. The devil, God's enemy, has tried to take Christianity and move it into a realm that God never intended it to be, to where people go through dutiful acts of religiousness. But you see, when Jesus, God in a human body, came to this earth, he didn't come to teach us rituals. The Bible says that the reason that Christ came to this earth, God in a human body, is because all of us were sinners, and there was no ritual that any of us could do that could remove our sin. And so God became a man in the person of Jesus Christ, and what he was really doing when he died on that cross was not teaching us a way of religion. What he was showing us is how we could have a relationship with God through what he was doing by paying for our sins on the cross. I promise you, it, this sounds like you know some wild preacher story. My wife can verify the validity of this. I no more got those words out of my mouth. And she went. And her face began to shake. And she had this horrified look. And she says, I am sick. I must lay down. She looks to my wife and says, do you, do you have a, a, anything for a headache? And so my wife, you know, she, she's shaking too. <laughs> and so is her husband. <laughs> and she, she gets out, you know, some Tylenol and gives it to her. She slams the Tylenol down. She lays down. And three of us are sitting over on this side going. <laughs> I mean, we look like the Cole Haynes, man. And I figured, well, it must be bedtime. <laughs> so I, I pulled down the, the bed above her and laid down and crawled up in there. And we're all, three of us, we're just kind of still looking at each other in amazement. And so my wife is down here. I'm up on top. And she's looking at me like, what's up with this? You know? <laughs> and I'm, I'm above, you know, curled up next to the wall going... And you know what happened? The demons put her to sleep so she could not hear the truth of the gospel. And what it is is a majorly intense form of 2 Corinthians 4.4. The God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of them that believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, which is the image of God, should shine unto them. And you see, she had already explained to me that she was a Brahmin, which is one of the highest levels that you can ascend in the Hindu religion. And by ascending into that level, what you have actually done by that period of time is you have opened yourself up to so many demons that the lady was full and running over with them. I talked to some of our brothers in India about that situation. They said, we run into it all the time. People are absolutely shut down when you have the opportunity to be able to give them the gospel. Now, 
As we get started this morning, let's all understand this. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, please do not miss the reality of 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. Now, I'm boring enough to where it'll probably put you to sleep today. But, do understand that Satan would love nothing more than to keep you blinded to the truth of the gospel. What I began to learn from this, this lady, and again, that was 10 years ago. That was before we had covered a lot of ground that we've covered in the last 10 years, y'all. But I had my eyes opened quite a bit to what is really going on and to what is going on in Revelation chapter 17. Because in Revelation chapter 17, we, we meet a woman. In fact, in the book of Revelation, and why don't you turn there, Revelation chapter 17, there are actually two women that are covered in the book of Revelation, and really it's an amazing thing when you begin to see what God says about these women and the incredible contrast. Now, there's no one place that you can go to in the book of Revelation where God just does what we're going to do here and side by side lays out this contrast. That's why he's told us to study, to show ourselves approved unto God, workmen that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And as you begin to study the book of Revelation, and you begin to divide, to divide the truth that's there, what you'll find is that there are, in fact, two women that God talks about in the book of Revelation. Both women are connected to God. One, of course, is connected to the God of heaven. And one is connected, as we've been talking about this morning, to the God of this world, the one that's spelled out for us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And verse 4. And then secondly, both women are connected to a geographic location that has great significance in world affairs. A location that has great significance in world affairs. One is a nation. One of these women that we're talking about in the book of Revelation is a nation, the nation of Israel specifically. And the other is a city. And this is the one that we see in Revelation chapter 17. And that city, of course, is Rome, and specifically, Vatican City. And then, thirdly, both women in this book have something on their head that God uses to help us make the proper connections in identifying her. Something is on her head that helps us to know who she is. One in Revelation 12.1, has a crown on her head. It says in Revelation 12.1, and upon her head, a crown of 12 stars, which, of course, lets us know that she, in fact, is the, the nation of Israel. And then in Revelation chapter, should be 17, and verse 5, one has a name on her forehead, Revelation 17.5 says, And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots. And then that leads us to verse 4. Both women in the book of Revelation are mothers. One of the mothers, Revelation 12.5, produces masculine nobility. It says that she is the mother of a son who is to rule all nations and one produces, the other mother produces feminine impurity. 
Again, Revelation 17.5 says that she is the mother of harlots who reigns over the kings of the earth. Fifthly, both women are lavishly dressed. They are lavishly dressed. One is wearing heavenly, heavenly garments. That's the one in Revelation 12.1. Her clothing is the source of light from heaven. It, what it, the scripture says is she is a woman clothed with the sun. The other woman is wearing not heavenly garments, but earthly garments. Her clothing is that which reflects light on earth. It says the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls. Number six, both women are found in the wilderness in the last half of the tribulation period. One is taken there, taken there on the wings of an eagle in Revelation 12:13. One is taken there on the back of a scarlet colored beast in Revelation 17 and verse 3. Number seven, both women become the target of bitter hatred and persecution. They both become the target of bitter hatred and persecution. One is hated by the devil himself, the woman, the nation of Israel in Revelation 12, 13, and he seeks to destroy her by drowning her with water, it says in verse 15 of Revelation 12. The other woman is hated by the kings of the earth, ultimately, Revelation 17, 16, and they seek to destroy her by burning her with fire, and Lord willing, we'll be able to to get that far this morning. But I want you to see that God has most definitely, in the book of Revelation, let us know that there are two main characters, both that are women, both that play a very significant role in the affairs of the last day. What we've been looking at in Revelation chapter 17 is the judgment of Babylon, we've seen that Revelation 17 is actually broken down into two sections. The first section deals with the Babylonish mother, and we have looked at her in Revelation 17, verses 1 through 6. We've seen her universal power, her unique position, her unlimited prosperity, her unholy passion, and her untold persecutions. And when John sees this woman, let me take you now to verse 6. And we'll get rolling here this morning. Revelation chapter 17 and verse 6. John says, And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And then he concludes and he says this, And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. Now, he's not using the word admiration in the sense that he admired her like we would admire someone's beauty. What he's trying to let us know is when I saw this woman and I saw her blood, I saw her drunk on the blood of the saints and of the martyrs, he said, I couldn't figure it out. It, it absolutely blew me away. I was, I was dumbfounded when, when I saw that because, you see, he understood that what he was seeing was Rome. Because, you see, he was living at a period of time when Rome dominated the world at the end of that first century, around 90 to 95 A.D. or so. And he had seen pagan Rome shed the blood of many of the saints of God. In fact, the, 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 the other apostles, he, he was fully aware that all of them had shed their blood and been martyrs 
for Jesus Christ. He understood pagan Rome and the role that it was going to have in being drunk with the, the, the blood of the saints and the martyrs of Jesus. What he couldn't figure out is that this woman that he was seeing, Rome, as he was seeing her in the first five verses of, of Revelation chapter 17, was a Rome that believed that Jesus Christ was the Son of God and believed that he was born of a virgin and believed that he lived a sinless life and believed that he died for sins when he died on the cross and believes that he was buried and believes that he rose again the third day and believes that he ascended to the Father. That's what's blowing him away is he's looking at a Rome that believes everything that you and I believe but they're drunk with the blood of the the saints and of the martyrs of Jesus and he couldn't he couldn't figure it out see because he was seeing not pagan Rome he was seeing papal Rome in her final fulfillment in the last days and it absolutely blew him away and then after he talks about this and he sees this we move into today's message and if you haven't already made your way to the other side of the study sheet the angel says to him, Wherefore didst thou marvel? Hey, what are you so blown away about, John? I will tell thee the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carrieth her, which hath the seven heads and ten horns. And what he really does throughout the rest of this chapter is he shows us now the Babylonish monster. The Babylonish monster. This, this beast that he says is going to rise to power during the tribulation period that literally reigns over the entire world. Monster man. It was a graveyard smash. We're going to be looking at the monster smash. And that's really what he describes for us here. The angel shows John, in verse, beginning in verse 8, the incredible rise to power of this beast and if you will Satan has had this one on the slab for quite a while and what we're seeing is when he rises off of that slab to really have his heyday we talk about a movie being a smash the beast when he rises to power will in fact be a smash and the angel shows John and us in the first part of verse 8 Whence the beast comes. Whence the beast comes. What he says is, The beast that thou sawest was, and is not, and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit, and go into perdition. Okay, you got that? The beast that thou sawest was, and is not, <laughs> 
and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition. And what this actually does is it takes us back to Revelation chapter 13. And why don't you turn back there, if you will. In Revelation chapter 13, what you see is you see the first time that he is talking about this beast rising to power. Look in verse 1. He says, And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his, ten, his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. And what begins to take place here in Revelation chapter 13 is God begins to show us what happens when this beast rises to power. And this is an absolutely incredible thing. It is a mind-boggling thing when you actually begin to see what Revelation chapter 13 says really is going on. Now, now just, just hang with it. For those of you that have been around here for a little while, you'll remember we covered this many, many moons ago. We've got a lot of other folks that are here since that time and a lot of us that have forgotten what really is talking about, what it's talking about here when we come in Revelation 17 and he says, the beast which was and is not and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit. Now understand what's going on. Back in chapter 12 of the book of Revelation, what it says is in, in verse 7, is that there is going to be a war that is going to take place in heaven in the middle of the tribulation period. This war that's going to be taking place is going to take place between Michael the archangel and with Satan himself, the dragon or the serpent. And the way it's going to come down is, is basically this. What the Bible says in Revelation chapter 12, and I think it's verse 10, is that Satan spends a good portion of his time, not you know in the bars and pool halls and houses of prostitution and all that trash on the earth. In fact, he does spend a lot of time in church, but most of the time, Satan spends his time at the throne of God. And what he's doing there is he is accusing those of us that know the Lord Jesus Christ. A very sobering fact when you begin to realize that everything that you and I are actually doing on this earth by way of sin, it's coming into the face of God because of the accuser of our brethren. Oh, <laughs> isn't that your child down there that's... And that's what's going on. But there's going to come a point in the tribulation period... Whereas Satan is accusing the brethren, God's going to say, uh, Michael, would you come deal with this chump, get him out of my face? And Michael's going to come over to where he is, and Satan's going to be like, yeah, whatever. I remember last time we went through this thing when we were fighting over the body of Moses. You had to call Daddy in, right? You had to call the, the Lord in to deal with it because you couldn't handle it yourself. And so Michael says, well, I'll tell you what, why don't we just step outside? So what they do is they leave the third heaven... And what it says in Revelation chapter 12 is they come into this earth's atmosphere, into the second heaven, and as soon as they step out of heaven, all of the angels that fell with, with Lucifer, with Satan in his fall, whoop, immediately come into his corner, and all of the ones were, that came with Michael, all the, the angels that were under his jurisdiction in heaven, God says, well, y'all go ahead and go out there too. Whoop. 
So they're all there. So you got Michael with all of his angels. You've got Satan with all of his angels. And buddy, they duke it out. They start going for it, the Bible says. And the Bible doesn't say how long it took place. It doesn't really go into whatever kind of weapons would have been used, if any. But what it does let us know is that when the whole song and dance was over, Michael was still standing and Satan had his behind kicked and fell down to the earth. Michael, that would have been a good place for amen, y'all. Come on. Man, I'm, I'm working this story for you here. Okay, so what, what it says is that Michael and the boys go back into heaven. They close the door behind him because what it says is that Satan and all of his imps will never have the opportunity to come into God's face again. That's spelled out. In, now, you're, now you're awake. That's spelled out for us there at the end of Revelation chapter 12 after this war is over. Their place was found no more at all in heaven. So what happens is Satan is cast down to the earth, but you've got to understand. Now listen, while all of this is taking place above the earth, something major is taking place down on the earth. And this is described for us in chapter 13. The Antichrist, the beast, has risen to power. And man, he is dazzling the world. And the world thinks he is the man. And man, he's got it all going on. And all of a sudden, what it says is that he receives a deadly wound to the head down on the earth. Verse 14 of chapter 13 is going to tell you that he's going to receive that from a sword. Somebody's going to have enough of the guy and just come with a sword and whap! And hit him right between the eyes with a sword and bam! He's going to be laying on the ground, cold, lifeless, and in a pool of blood. And buddy, CNN is going to be right there. MSNBC, ABC, CBS, TBN. They're all going to be there covering this thing while it's, it's going on. They're all going to be... Some of you have to get the tape and find out what that was about. But they're all going to be there covering this thing. And listen, the whole world is going to be freaked out because this was their... What? This was their Savior, man. This is the guy that was making sense out of all of those people that are missing all over the planet. This is the guy that was pulling the world together politically and governmentally and economically and this is the guy that had all the answers and now he's laying dead and then all of a sudden while the cameras are zooming in and the whole world is glued to the TV set watching this thing happen all of a sudden as the camera zooms in on that wound all of a sudden the wound begins to heal itself and everybody just stands in absolute amazement. With, what, in the, what in the world is going on here? And they watch. As that body begins to move, and he begins to stand to his feet, and the world looks at him in absolute amazement. Because you know what happened? While he was being assassinated on the earth, this war was taking place in heaven. And when Satan fell to the earth, you know where he went? Right into the body 
of the one that he had been setting up for three and a half years. And at this point in the tribulation period, what is going to take place is the beast is actually going to become Satan incarnate. Satan in a human body. And you know how long he'll minister on the earth? For 42 months or three and a half years, the same amount of time that the true Christ ministered when he came to this planet. You see, his desire has always been to be like the Most High. And he, at that point, literally becomes Satan incarnate. But you think that's hard to believe. <laughs> Wait till you hear this. While he's being assassinated on the earth, and while this thing is taking place in the heavenlies between Michael and Satan, something is happening down below as well. And we've gone through this, and we've seen this. Something's happening down in the bottomless pit. Because you see, there is a king that's there, according to Revelation chapter 9, whose name means destroyer or perdition. There's one in that bottomless pit who, according to Acts chapter 1, went to his own place, who went to the bottomless pit and as the son of perdition is going to arise out of the bottomless pit at the same time satan is falling from the heavens he's coming up from the bottomless pit to find entrance into that body so that that beast that antichrist is actually not only going to be satan incarnate but he's going to be judas iscariot reincarnate now if this is all coming too fast for you if it's too hard to believe Go to check out tape number 81 where we go into full detail on, on this whole thing and all the cross-references on, on this thing. But, but now listen. Here is the beast and he dies while at the same time Satan falls to the earth to take entrance into his body. Judas comes up out of the bottomless pit and finds entrance into that body and now go back to where we were In verse 8, and see if you can't understand what he's saying now. The beast that thou sawest was, that is, you saw him for three and a half years on this planet, and then he was not. He was laying lifeless in a pool of blood, and then shall ascend out of the bottomless pit, and here is his ultimate demise, he will go back into perdition. And we'll see that as we continue on in our study of this book. But then notice next in verse 8 that the angel shows John why the beast comes. Why the beast comes. He comes to deceive the mass of people on this planet who reject Christ during the tribulation period. He is there first and foremost to deceive the people. Look at verse 8 as we continue on. The second part of the verse, it says, And they that dwell on the earth shall wonder whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they behold the beast that was and is not and yet is. And notice that, that phrase back up there in the middle of verse 8. And they that dwell on the earth. That, that phrase is a phrase that is used consistently throughout the book of Revelation to describe for us those who have rejected the Lord Jesus Christ in the tribulation period. They've turned to the God of this world. They're the 
earth dwellers. Let me just show you this back in uh, chapter 17. Look at verse 2. With whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication and the, here they are, the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. Go back to chapter 3 for a sec. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 10. Our Lord writes to the church in Philadelphia, because thou, verse 10, because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Look at chapter 6 and verse 10. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and just, uh, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And again, we could just take you all the way through the book of Revelation. I think you get the idea. What these are is these are people during the tribulation period and even at this period of time that you and I are living in that did not want the truth. The truth, the Lord Jesus Christ was looking them square in the face. They had had the 144,000 present the gospel to them and they rejected it. They rejected the truth. You know what they wanted? They wanted a... They wanted a lie, and so God's going to give them exactly what they want. Man, they want something miraculous. They want something that will dazzle them. Well, man, just wait till you see what happens when that Antichrist dies, and then he apparently resurrects. What it says is going to happen is that they will wonder when they behold the beast that was and is not and yet is, oh my goodness, when they see that resurrection, man, they are going to wonder. They are going to be just all over this guy. Now, they had been that way before, but look at chapter 13. It even tells you what they're going to be saying at this point when they see this. He says in, in verse 3, And I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed. And all the world wandered after the beast, and they worshipped the dragon which gave power unto the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? And who is able to make war with him? Oh, man, this guy is it! He's what we've been waiting for all along. So that's whence he comes. He comes out of the bottomless pit. And why he comes? He comes to deceive the masses. Now let's look at number three. Where the beast comes. Where the beast comes. Look at verse 9. And here is the mind which hath wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth. Now I want you to notice here that Revelation chapter 17 tells us several things about where this woman that we've been talking about is seated in the tribulation period. Look back at the end of verse 1, Revelation 17. Look back at the end of verse 1. He says, I will show unto thee the, the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters. And of course, that's defined for us in verse 15. The waters which thou sawest where the whore sitteth are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. So she's sitting on many waters. And, and then notice verse 3. John says, So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman 
sit upon a scarlet colored beast, okay? So she's not only sitting upon the waters, the multitudes of people, she's also sitting upon the beast. And then now look again in, in verse 9. What, what it says here is that the woman is sitting on seven mountains. And what he does here is he identifies for us geographically that mystery Babylon, in case you had missed it anywhere in the whole flow of everything that we've already seen in our study of the first six verses, if you've missed it, what he's letting us know is that mystery Babylon is actually located in Rome, the city of seven hills or seven mountains. And historically speaking, Rome is the only city in the world that is situated on seven hills. And if you wonder if this is a city that's being discussed here, look at verse 18. And the woman which thou sawest is that great city which reigneth over the kings of the earth, namely Vatican City. And what we're going to see is that during the tribulation period, Rome is going to be a city of such great importance that it's going to make Washington and Moscow and Peking and all of those look like New Philadelphia. Rome is going to be the seat of this beast, the, the, the seat of, of this, this, this woman that rides the beast. Now, you know, you'll, if you check out the commentators, there's a lot of them that will tell you that, and then there's a lot of other ones that are going to say, now, there's no way in the world that this can mean Rome here because uh, it, it tells you in verse 10 that the seven heads or seven mountains or, or that those seven mountains there that are discussed in verse 9 are defined in verse king that there are seven uh, verse 10 that there are seven kings but you got to notice the first word of verse 10 and there are seven kings what, what, what he, he's, he's talking about here is in addition to what we just saw in verse 9 there are seven kings there are seven mountains yes and there are seven kings. And so what he shows us here is where the beast comes. He's actually going to do his bidding from the city of Rome, the city of seven mountains or seven hills. That leads us to the next thing that John has shown here. Not just whence the beast comes and why he comes and where he comes, but when the beast comes in verses 10 and 11. When the beast comes. Now, now watch this re real carefully. It says... And there are seven kings, five are fallen, and one is, and the other is not yet come, and when he cometh, he must continue a short space. And the beast that was and is not, even he is the eighth, and is of the seven, and goeth into perdition. Okay, you got that? Okay, well, let's go into verse 12 then. Wow! I mean, you talk about a mouthful there. Okay, let, let's just kind of break this thing down and see if we can't simplify it. <laughs> okay, look at the first part of this. It says, and there are seven kings. Now, now, this takes us back to something that we saw back in chapter 12. Let me, let me take you there so you can see this. Revelation chapter 12, in verse 3. It says, And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, watch this now, having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns 
upon his heads. Now, of course, the dragon, in case you're new, is defined for you down in verse 9. It's none other than Satan, the, the, the devil. And verse 3 says that the dragon has seven heads, and the seven heads have seven crowns. And what these are is either the same kings that we're talking about over here in Revelation chapter 17 and, and verse 10. And just if you want to do some cross-referencing, this dragon that has seven heads is spelled out for you, very specifically for you, in Job 41 under the, uh, the picture of Leviathan. But what you find here is what God is saying to us here is that the Bible lays out the kingdoms from the beginning of history to the end of history under the picture of seven crowns or seven kings. And by these kings or these kingdoms, Satan, the god of this world, has controlled and is controlling the world or is controlling the earth. The first one is Nimrod, the king of Babylon. Nimrod, the king of Babylon. You find him in Genesis chapter 10, verses 8 through 10. He ruled at approximately 2400 B.C. The second king through which Satan ruled the world is Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. You find him in Exodus chapter 5 and, and verse 2, and also in Ezekiel 29 and verse 3. And that Egyptian kingdom or empire ran until approximately 800 B.C. The third king of this dragon is a man by the name of Sennacherib. The spelling is above if you need it. Sennacherib, the king of Assyria. He's found in 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 13. He rules the world until approximately 606 B.C. And then the next four, you might want to just note, are all found in the book of Daniel in the vision of the, the great image in Daniel chapter 2. That fourth head is Nebuchadnezzar. Again, the spelling is above Nebuchadnezzar. And he, of course, was the king of Babylon. You find him in Daniel chapter 3, uh, Jeremiah 51, verse 35, where it refers to him as a dragon, in fact. His kingdom runs from approximately 606 B.C. to 536 B.C. And then the fifth king takes over, Darius. Darius, the king of the Media Persian Empire. The Media Persian Empire. He's listed in Daniel chapter 5, verse 31. And that kingdom runs from about 536 B.C. to about 330 B.C. And then the sixth king. And this one is not specifically named in Scripture, but by the prophecy, there's no doubt in anybody's mind of who it was. It is Alexander the Great, the king of Greece. Alexander the Great, the king of Greece. His kingdom is found in Daniel 10, verse 20, Daniel 11, verse 2, Daniel 8, verse 21, where Alexander the Great is referred to there as the rough goat. The rough goat. And then the Grecian Empire extends from approximately 330 B.C. to 100 B.C. And then the seventh head by which Satan ran the world is the kingdom of Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus, the king of Rome. And, of course, this would have been the, the power running the world at the time of our Lord's first coming. You find it in Luke chapter 1, verse 68 to 71. Uh, in Luke chapter 2 and verse 1, the kingdom that ran from approximately 100 B.C. to 346 A.D. And that's the last head of Satan or the last king. Now, now here is what's so important. Make sure that you don't miss this. 
at this point, okay, you're looking at that, that seventh king on, on your study sheet there, okay? Rome, that, that seventh head of Satan, at that point, in 346 A.D., went into a, a mystery form that's called, in Revelation 17 and verse 5, mystery. Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. And in that mystery form, what Rome did is switched from being a military power to control the world into a mysterious religious form to control the world politically. And that's why to this day, the Roman church is also called Vatican State. And that's why Revelation 17, 18 says in reference to the Roman church that she is the one that has historically reigned over the kings of the earth. And so what God is showing us throughout the word of God is that there have only been seven heads with seven crowns. There's only been seven kings and there will never be any more than, the, than that. The Antichrist is going to come and what he's going to do is he simply going to pick up as a 21st century Caesar Augustus. It's going to be the Roman Empire revived under the Antichrist. And notice as John goes on in verse 10 of Revelation 17, he says, look at it again, there are seven kings, five are fallen, and one is, and the other is not yet come. Now, I'll be honest with you, everybody and their brother has a different opinion about what this actually means as, as God was trying to, or the, this angel was trying to share with John what this means. He says, now listen, you're going to have to have some incredible wisdom to be able to figure this out. To be quite honest with you, I don't know for sure if I've got the wisdom to figure this thing out. Again, everybody and their brother that has ever studied this comes up with some kind of a different nuance, and I'm sure I'm no different than, than anybody else. Let me just tell you what I think. I'm not going to die on this hill. I don't think that, you know, and after all these years, now here I am, and I think I've got it nailed. I, I'm just going to tell you what, what, what I think, what works for me. Okay, now as you look at this list on your study sheet there, that's why I put that list there so you could see this. Okay, you'll notice that the first and the fourth are the same kingdom, right? Babylon. The first is Babylon under Nimrod, the fourth Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, if you count Babylon as one, okay, because it shows up twice, okay, and if you count that as one, then what you would have is Babylon is fallen, and look at your list, Egypt under Pharaoh is fallen, Assyria under Shennacherib is fallen, Media Persia under Darius is fallen, and Greece under Alexander the Great is fallen. So, okay, those are five that are fallen. And verse 10 goes on. And one is. Okay, now who's that? That's Caesar, right? The king of Rome, which would have been the king when John wrote. And he goes on, and the other is not yet come. He says there is another Caesar who will be a king of the Roman Empire, but it's going to be a revived Roman Empire. It's going to be the empire of the Antichrist, the beast. Okay, now watch verse 10 again. And when he cometh, okay, the Antichrist, or this mysterious Caesar, he must continue 
a short space. And that short space is defined for us back in Revelation chapter 13 and verse 5. It tells you that that short space is 42 months, three and a half years. And look at verse 11. And the beast that was and is not, even he is the eighth. Okay? Now, if you'll just look at your list there, he'll be the king after Caesar Augustus, but notice that it says, as verse 11 goes on, and is of the seven. He, he's, he's another Caesar, just like that seventh king. He's another puppet king, just like all of the other seven. He is simply an instrument of Satan, or as we saw in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 3, he is simply one of his crowned heads. Now, again, I know that there is probably a good portion of you right now that are going, say what? And others of you are going, okay, well, that, that'll work too. And it, listen, my responsibility is simply to tell you what it says. And I, I don't know what that's going to do for you tomorrow. I just know that I'm responsible for giving you the word of God. That's when the beast comes. Any way you slice it, it's at the end of this sequence. He will be the final world power in this, this world domination that Satan has masterminded all the ways back to Nimrod. So that's the monster smash. And I think that we can, I think we can scoot along and we can cover the rest of this. Let's look next, letter B on your outline, at the monster's bash. The monster's bash. Listen, after everything that we've seen here, after he does this whole thing of rising from the dead, apparently, as Satan enters him, as Judas comes from beneath and he enters him, listen, at this point, man, the, the reign of the Antichrist is an absolute bash. It is a party, man. He is riding high. And watch what it says here. And the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings which have received no kingdom as yet, but receive power as kings one hour with the beast. And what we find here is that during the tribulation period, the nations of Europe will be united in a, a ten-kingdom federation under the, the beast. And interestingly enough, the number ten in the Bible is the number of the Gentiles and the number of completeness as far as the evil world is concerned. Of course, seven is the number of completion as far as God is concerned. But what you begin to find is that the Gentiles come from Noah, who just happens to be the tenth from Adam. The, the Gentile nations are separated in Genesis chapter 10. In Daniel's vi vision, the, the image has ten toes, and those ten toes are what represent the Gentile nations, or this ten-nation confeder confederacy that we're talking about here with these ten horns. And what it says is as the Antichrist rules with these ten horns, this, this confederation of ten kingdoms, he says these kings receive power as kings. Now there's only going to be one king and it is going to be Caesar, okay? Just like it was back in, in pagan Rome. There will be one king. It will be the Antichrist. These guys will receive power as kings. They'll be nothing more than figureheads. And he says that what's going to happen is that they're going to receive power as kings for one hour. And what he's talking about here is for a brief period of time. In fact, if you go back to Revelation chapter 3 and verse 10, you don't have to. We read it just a minute ago. What he said to those believers in Philadelphia is, I will keep you from the hour of temptation. 
the hour of temptation that he's talking about there is the tribulation period. So verse 13 goes on. These have one mind. All of these kings from these ten nations, what you find is that there is going to be an incredible unity under the Antichrist direction. And they'll all have one mind and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. Again, they're just puppets on Satan's string. And there'll be such a groundswell behind the power of the beast. Verse 14 says, These shall make war with the Lamb. You remember what we saw after they saw Him rise from the dead back in Revelation chapter 13 and verse 4? They all wondered at Him and said, Who is like unto the beast? And who shall make war with Him? This guy is going to rock the world. There is nobody that could come against him. And so what he does, this Antichrist, the beast, Satan incarnate, Judas, Judas reincarnate, is going to so get the, the powers of the world during the tribulation period so stoked up, so worked up. Look at verse 14. It says, These shall make war with the Lamb. Oh, who could, who could go to war with this one? We'll go to war with the Lamb. This is what's prophesied for us in Psalm 2, verses 2 through 9. Listen to what it says. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, His Messiah, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. That's exactly what we're seeing here in Revelation chapter 17, and verse 14. Let us, let us break their bands. Let, let's go to war with, with God and His wimpy Messiah. Let's, let's, let's do this thing with the Lamb of God. And you know what the Bible says the Lord's going to do? Oh, you can imagine. He's going to be up in heaven just biting his fingernails going, Oh my goodness, the whole world is set against me. They're all coming after me. What am I going to do? What it says in Psalm 2 and verse 5, I love it. He that sits in the heavens shall laugh. <laughs> Y'all are so cute. <laughs> oh, I tell you, I love this. He's going to laugh. It's laughable to him. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then, verse 5 of Psalm 2 says, Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. And verse 9 says, He will break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. They're going to be just like a, a piece of clay that has been baked in the oven. He's going to smash it to the ground and they will all over the, the face of the earth. The way that Revelation 17, 14 says it, look at it. They shall make war with the Lamb and the Lamb shall overcome them. And that's all that it says right here. We're going to see in Revelation 19 what it's going to really be like when He overcomes them. And the reason, the reason that He'll laugh, the reason He'll hold them in derision, the reason that He will vex them, the reason He'll break them, the reason He'll overcome them is in the middle of verse 14. For He is Lord of lords and King of kings. That's why. And you don't mess with this king. It doesn't matter if you are the Antichrist, the king of the world, and you've got your all of your nations set. You can get them all in agreement. You can have all the unity in the world. And you are nothing compared to the Lord of lords and the King of kings. And they that are with Him, look at it. And they that are with Him, you know who that is? That's the raptured 
church-age saints, that's us, y'all, from Revelation 4.1. Also, it's the raptured tribulation saints from Revelation 14 and verse 16. And look at what it says of us and of them. And they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. So, as this Babylonish monster begins his bash on the earth, we see, first of all, that he is hailed. He is hailed. Now look at the second part of the bash. Number two on your outline. The Babylonish mother hated. The Babylonish mother hated. And you see, to this point in the monster's reign, and now don't lose this, to this point, the masses of the world still have allegiance to the woman. Still have allegiance to the whore, the religious system. She's still in the saddle. You see that back in verse 3? She's still in the saddle. And whoever sits in the saddle dominates and directs the beast. And verse 16 says, And the ten horns which thou sawest upon the beast, they shall hate the whore. Now understand, the whore has been used to give the Antichrist his rise to power in these ten nations. But once they get there, they have no need for this whore. They have no need for this woman. They shall hate the whore. And they hate her for three reasons. Letter A, the kings of the earth hate her for practical reasons. Number one, she is detested. Look at verse 16. She is detested. And the ten horns which thou sawest upon the beast, these shall hate the whore. That religious system becomes just an unwanted encumbrance. It's, it's holding back the reign of the Antichrist. So she is detested. Number two, she is desolated. It says in verse 16, And shall make her desolate. Whereas before, do you remember... She was decked with gold and precious stones and pearls and she was full of wealth. And now she's desolated. Number three, she is desecrated. She is desecrated. Verse 16 goes on and says, Then she is naked, whereas she was arrayed in purple and scarlet. Now she is naked. Next, number four, she is devoured. It says, And shall eat her flesh. And it's just real interesting. If you'll go back and look at that woman, Jezebel, which is this woman that we're seeing here in Revelation chapter 17, that woman, Jezebel, if you see what happened to her, she was cast down to the street and the dogs ate her flesh in the same way that that ten-nation confederacy and the Antichrist will eat, that woman, Jezebel, will eat her flesh. And the number five, she is destroyed the last part of verse 16 says that they will burn her with fire. And don't miss this cross-reference. This is too good, man. Leviticus chapter 21 and verse 9 says that's what you do with horrors. You burn them with fire. So the kings of the earth hate her, first of all, for practical reasons. Secondly, let her be. The kings of the earth hate her for providential reasons. And, oh, you just got to love this. Verse 17, For God hath put in their hearts to fulfill His will and to agree and give their kingdom unto the beast until the words of God shall be 
fulfilled. And, and listen to me, ladies and gentlemen, if you didn't get anything out of today, if all of this is just a bunch of meaningless verbiage to you, do not miss this. God's will and God's word will be fulfilled to the letter. I mean, it doesn't matter what the kings of the earth do. It doesn't matter what every power and every authority on this planet does. It makes no difference. God is going to have His way. The Bible says that the heart of the king is where? In the hand of of the Lord, and it doesn't matter if it's a good king or a bad king, God is going to accomplish what He wants to accomplish through that king. And I don't know, what you're, I don't know what's going on in your world. Let, let's just get practical here for just a second. I don't know what's going on in your world. I don't know what kind of evil has befallen you. I don't know what kind of powers are coming against you. I don't know what kind of evil situation that you're facing in your life right now. But listen, rest assured, based on verse 17, God is going to fulfill His will, and God is going to fulfill every single promise of His Word, and you can go to the bank with that. That's what we see here with this, I mean, this incredibly horrendous thing. I mean, all the evil, it is just, it is just paramount right here. I mean, it's all the evil for 6,000 years has just culminated at this event. And you know what actually happens at that event? God has put in their heart exactly what He wants them to do. And so you know what they do? They do just what God wants them to do. And what we learn from this is that the powers of evil are simply pawns in the hand of a righteous God. And you don't have to be freaked out about them. But these kings of the earth would not only hate her for practical reasons and for providential reasons, but let her see for political reasons. For political reasons, look at verse 18. And the woman which thou sawest is that great city which reigneth over the kings of the earth. You see, these guys realize as long as they allow her to survive, she's going to do exactly what she has done for the last 1,600 and something years. She is going to dominate the kings of the earth. And what they've got to do is they've got to destroy her. They've got to des desecrate her. They've got to devour her. And that's exactly what they do. And the reason they do it is for political reasons because they want the Antichrist and the kingdom that he is establishing to rule over the entire planet. And they think we just need to, we need to get rid of this, this woman and we're going to be set. And they have no idea that once... They get rid of that woman and they turn their eyes on that lamb that that lamb is going to break them to shivers, man. He's going to bust them wide open and he will come in his second coming and he will rule and reign over all of the earth. And he'll finally get the glory that he deserves. Now, I'll just be honest with you, man. I'm a happy camper to be out of Revelation 17. That was, that was a mouthful. I, man, I appreciate the way that you guys approach the Word of God and that you come in here and you want to know what God is saying. I hope that the things we've looked at today will help you. But from a practical standpoint, you know what? Some of you guys are, man, 
you're in the trenches of life right now and you feel that evil is about to overtake you and it's about to win. And oh my goodness, y'all, if you don't get anything else out of all of this, just get it in your heads. God has not forgotten and God's going to pull off every single promise that He gave you in that book and God is going to fulfill His will in your life as long as you are yielded to Him. The thing that you need to do today is make sure that you have yielded your will to His will. And if you're here today and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, wow, what we're seeing here in Revelation chapter 17 is something that we believe that the Bible, I mean, it, it is not hard to see these ten nations beginning to jockey for position in that European common market. I mean, it's, it's happening. The number changes from day to day. By the time that this thing is all said and done, there's actually going to be 13, and then three of them are going to be displaced according to Daniel's prophecy that it's going to leave it with 10. So however many there are today, it doesn't really matter. By the time this all unfolds, there's going to be 10, and 10 only, just like God has, has said. And we see all of this stuff. I mean, it's just like God is right now setting the stage for everything that we're seeing here to just unfold on this planet. And I say that to you now as we're coming to a conclusion so that maybe you might understand the urgency of you coming to the Lord Jesus Christ and receiving Him as your personal Savior. Because these people that set themselves with these kings, you know who they are? They are the people who dwell on the earth. Those are the people who have rejected Jesus Christ that said, rather than truth, we want a lie. And buddy, when the people of this world who have rejected Christ see the lie of the Antichrist as he apparently resurrects, the whole world, the scripture says, will wonder after him and will worship him and will take his mark which will seal your eternal destiny. But right now, we're sitting at a period of time where none of this needs to have anything whatsoever to do with you. Because today, if you'll receive the Lord Jesus Christ, what will happen is He'll remove you off of the face of this planet before any of this stuff takes place. That, that's what the Scripture tells us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. If you have questions today, about what God is asking of you as a sinner separated from Him. We would love the opportunity of being able to talk with you today about receiving the Lord Jesus Christ. Nobody's going to make you do anything. Nobody's going to make you feel uncomfortable. We would love, though, to answer any questions that you might have about what you've heard today. Our pastors are going to be up on either side of the front of this room as we're dismissed in just a couple of moments. And we'd like to invite you today. And if the Lord is speaking to your heart, we'd like to ask you to come and respond to what God's doing in your heart today. Let's stand together. <clears throat> and now, Lord, <clears throat> we want to ask you, that you would work in the hearts of people here today that don't know you. I, I pray that you would help them to see how incredibly your, your book fits together. And I pray that beyond e anything that human reasoning could accomplish, 
I pray that your spirit, even now, would reprove people in this room of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. And I pray through the conviction of the Spirit of God in their hearts that you, Father, would draw them to your Son. The only way for us to remove the sin that separates us from you. And so, Lord, would you, would you do your work in our midst today. And may these things that we have seen, again, provide for us that do know you an urgency to reach people on this planet who have been duped through religion or through whatever it may be that Satan is using to blind them. We pray that you would help us to have an urgency about who we are and about what we're doing on this planet in these last days. I pray that you would burn in us a, a, a fire and a passion, a love to reach out to our neighbors and friends, even those that are engulfed in, in this woman that we read about in chapter 17. So, Lord, do your work in, in our midst today, we ask in Jesus' name.